sir. I don't give a damn to be in the big leagues unless I get something for my work. I'll pick shit with the chickens before I play for any less. After Cleveland's great pitcher Addie Joss died, his fellow ballplayers staged a benefit game to aid his widow. All the great stars came. Walter Johnson, Smokey Joe Wood, Napoleon Lajouet, and Ty Cobb. The game was a great success. They managed to raise $12,931. But it only increased the players' anxieties. With no pensions of their own, or job security, or grievance procedure with the owners, they felt powerless. They now formed a players' fraternity. It had two goals, to rid baseball of the hated reserve clause, and to gain a larger share of the profits for the men who made those profits possible. At first, they got nowhere. The owners simply ignored them. Then, in 1914, a band of rich businessmen, hoping to get in on the baseball action, formed their own league, the Federal League. They began offering big money to big stars, willing to sign up with their teams. They even gave the players the right to become free agents. 81 players were lured to the new league, including Three Finger Brown, Joe Tinker and Chief Bender. Old ballparks were renovated and new ones built, including one on Chicago's north side that would one day be called Wrigley Field. For a time, the Federal League was a success, with teams in eight cities, including Baltimore, Pittsburgh, Brooklyn, St. Louis, and Kansas City. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hey, everybody, what's new? What's cooking? What's shaking? How's it going? My name's Tim Hanlon, as announced. Thank you, Corey Coates, our announcer, uh, for doing so again. Uh, and uh, the uh, podcast that you have uh, fumbled or stumbled your way to. Uh, is, of course, called Good Seats, still available. Our curious little journey, usually each week, into what used to be in professional sports. I thank you tremendously for finding us. Uh, I thank you kindly for uh, downloading or streaming or wh however, which whatever means by which you uh, put us in your earbuds. And uh, hopefully you'll enjoy this episode uh, as, uh, as uh, we have uh, tried to entertain you over the last 60 plus uh, weeks and episodes of such. Uh, we're going to go back to uh, baseball this week, we had such a tremendous response, uh, frankly, uh, quite surprisingly, uh, to the uh, baseball league that never was, the Continental League. That was our conversation uh, in episode number 60 with uh, the professor, Russ Buhite, uh, and former player, by the way, or a former almost player in the Continental League. And we made some references in that conversation to uh, the league that, uh, in many respects, was almost the uh, the model that uh, people like Branch Rickey and others involved uh, almost used as its uh, as its uh, blueprint, uh, and that literally was the league because it actually existed for a couple of years in 1914 and 1915. Uh, that kind of uh, was the last actual challenger to that of what existed as organized baseball. That being the American League and National League, 
in that era. And um, some of these issues uh, that the Federal League, as it was called, uh, brought up uh, and were chafing at by uh, the uh, inability of the American National Leagues uh, to be more or less, frankly, restrictive with players. Uh, the reserve clause, uh, the uh, inability of those leagues to warm up to the idea of other markets. Uh, yes, this sort of franchise and territorial and geographic expansion thing uh, was not just a thing of the 50s and 60s and, and today, but uh, even way back when, when uh, America was a much younger country and baseball was still in its uh, earliest of days as a professional exploit. Uh, you know, the the uh, you know, it's it's like a club, right? When you're part of that club and you've got all the money behind it and, uh, you know, they you don't sort of necessarily take too uh too quickly to uh, interlopers and people from the outside with uh, ideas, shall we say. Uh, but the Federal League was, uh, make no mistake, was no mere idea. And uh, we're going to get into some of uh, the rationale behind it, uh, the people involved with it, uh, and uh, its actual existence and, and why uh, not only existed, but sort of the legacy that literally lives on today uh, in various pockets of today's not only modern baseball game, but pro sports in this country. Uh, our guest this week is Dan Levitt, and he is the author of the book, or a book, a pretty, pr- frankly, probably a seminal, the seminal book about the Federal League of uh, 1914 and 1915. It's called The Outlaw League and the Battle That Forged Modern Baseball. And uh, if you you know, if you don't necessarily enjoy sort of our old-timey shows, uh, I do think you should listen to this nonetheless, because not only is it an enjoyable conversation, Dan's a, a good guy to talk to. Uh, and the book and the topic is, I think, fascinating. It resonates and is actually as palpable today as it was back then. And the issues, uh, frankly, haven't been fully solved, right? The issues of uh, free agency or the lack thereof or or player mobility or the idea of how franchises uh, and uh, expansion and or uh, territorial rights and, and all those kinds of things and how players are treated um, – you know, all those things are still uh, very much part of the uh, of the landscape, and arguably even more uh, uh, pronounced and important uh, than ever, as the money has just gotten gargantuan in professional sports, uh, and the stakes are much even higher. I guess you could even say uh, they were than they were back at the uh, turn of the uh, of the twentieth century here in this country. So, our conversation with Dan Levitt uh, in a couple of seconds. Please, please uh, enjoy that in a couple of seconds. Uh, let's uh, get some promotional stuff out of the way. Uh, we can't do this show uh, not only without your support, but frankly, our support of our sponsors. And we encourage you uh, to take advantage of some of the cool offers that we uh, have for you uh, from our sponsors. SportsHistoryCollectibles.com uh, is one of those uh, sponsors, and we thank them tremendously. Uh, when you go to SportsHistoryCollectibles.com, I'm not sure you're going to find any, frankly, any Federal League stuff, any Chicago Whales or Baltimore Terrapins or uh, Newark Peppers or Indiana, uh, Indianapolis uh, Hoosiers, any of those uh, teams from the 1914 and 1915 uh, Federal League. But uh, you will certainly find a whole treasure trove of various forms of baseball memorabilia from all kinds of other leagues and teams uh, of a more modern era and uh, uh, a variety, uh, but also not only from baseball, but from all sports, frankly, uh, that have played professionally and even some collegiate stuff uh, and uh, some really cool curated things there. And uh, I, I'm sure you're going to find some very uh, uh, interesting and intriguing things and a few things, frankly, that you're just going to desperately need to have for yourself. And when you decide that that's the case, you know what you got to do, right? 
Say it with me. Of course, the promo code. You want to use the promo code at checkout. It's called Good Seats. That's the promo code, Good Seats, when you go to sportshistorycollectibles.com. And what are you going to get? Of course, you're going to get 15% off all of your purchases. Uh, so go there early, bookmark it, and go back on a regular basis because uh, Dean Mitchell and friends uh, have a uh, an ongoing uh, assortment of things that they bring into uh, the sportshistorycollectibles.com site. So uh, what you see this week will either not be there the, the following week or will actually be supplemented by a whole bunch of new stuff. So as they say, go early and go often. And uh, again, when you decide uh, you desperately need and have to have something from that collection, go to sportshistorycollectibles.com, use that promo code Good Seats, and enjoy, please, on us, 15% off of all of your purchases. Also, too, uh, while you're doing that, perhaps even before you do that, make sure you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats and make sure that you get a free audiobook download, courtesy of us, uh, to enjoy and understand and believe and, and just just uh, revel in uh, the excitement that is audiobooks. Audible is the uh, preeminent source of audiobooks uh, in the uh, United States and, frankly, worldwide. And uh, we can offer you not only a free audiobook uh, download for you to uh, sample and enjoy, but also a free uh, one-month subscription to the Audible service. That's when you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats, and uh, you will see a, uh, a, a vast array of uh, just a ginormous uh, number of books and titles and authors and uh, and categories to choose from. I think it's over 180,000. No, I know. It's over 180,000 titles. Uh, and, uh, of course, absolutely no excuse to not be able to find something not one title that you're going to be able to find in there that uh, will satisfy your interests. And what a great way to sort of uh, use that free credit to uh, enjoy and sample the idea of what an audiobook is. And uh, hopefully audio uh, 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 Audible's uh, version of such will uh, will be enough for you to uh, stick around for a period of time and enjoy uh, many more titles uh, at your fingertips. Audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Again, a free audiobook download for you to enjoy, as well as a free month uh, of the service. And uh, a reminder, of course, that you can cancel at any time. So it's kind of no risk, right? So the idea of getting a free audiobook, you don't like it, cancel, and uh, you've hopefully listened to the book, you've enjoyed it, and uh, and you're on your way. But uh, I suspect that you'll probably want to stick around for a little longer because it's a great service and audiobooks are awesome. Thank you, Audible. Uh, again, audibletrial.com slash goodseats. All right. Let's uh, enjoy uh, now our conversation with uh, with Dan Levitt. Uh, I learned a lot. I always do in these conversations, but uh, this one's especially interesting because it really uh, is not just about old time history. It's about really sort of the mechanics of professional sports uh, issues that linger today. And here's our chat with Dan about the Federal League. I hope you enjoy it. I've always been interested in in baseball, and you know I've also always been interested in, in history and why things turned out the way they do. Just sort of curious as to how you know what was you know again why uh, what what were turning points and why things mattered. And you know baseball just makes a great canvas for exploring some of those kinds of questions. Uh, as it relates to baseball and just also in sort of the wider the wider context. And so why baseball in particular to chronicle and is this sort of a, an amateur thing or is this as your professional life, uh, 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 you know, gone down the path of baseball or is it just sort of a, a thing that you decided to do on a, on a personal passion? 
No, it's uh, it's a personal passion. I'd say it's more it's it's obviously more than a hobby. Uh, but I do have a full time job. I work for uh, a real estate uh, development and construction company in their uh, capital markets group up here in Minneapolis. Got it. So, all right. So, why this federal league? What uh, what was the itch that uh, you had to scratch on, on this story? What what stood out that uh, made it a uh, a story worth uh, worth pursuing? Was it uh, was it just a general curiosity, or was there a particular issue or thing that came across your radar that said, "Hmm, this is maybe a little bit more interesting to 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 go deeper into"? Well, I've always thought it was an interesting story. I mean, just ever since I started reading baseball history. But what really sort of got me involved in it is I I wrote a, a biography of Ed Barrow, who was the first real GM of the Yankees in the twenties, and really was the guy who built the team, obviously, along with owner Jacob Rupert. And he was the president of the International League during the battle with the Federal League. And the International League, which was, along with the American Association, was one of the high, was the highest minor league, I guess the Pacific Coast League, too, although that was relatively unaffected. And the International League was probably more negatively affected by the battle with the Federal League than anybody else. And so... There was a lot of the book, I mean, not a lot of the book, but several chapters dealt with Barrow battling the Federal League. And it was clearly just all sorts of really interesting stories and stuff were coming out of that. And as as I dug into his time at the International League during 1914 and 1915, it just felt like, wow, there's a lot of stuff here that people haven't written about before particularly in the interactions between the two leagues and the trying to sign players away from each. Uh, you know, there's been pretty good histories. Uh, there was a good history of the Federal League that's been written. But that, that's sort of of the league itself, what was happening on the field. And the, the, the really the battle between the two, I, I don't think had been really dealt with uh, in any sort of interesting treatment. And so I said, all right, I need a new book project. That sounds like a fun one. So uh, let's uh, give our audience a bit of a sense of sort of the prelude to this. So this this idea of a federal league, right? So we're talking about the time in 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 baseball history where uh, the American League and the National League were essentially the two professional leagues, uh, quite separate, but yet you know related. Uh, that had uh, pretty much at the turn of the century sort of become uh, the place for uh, the most uh, professional of. Uh, of baseball play, and uh, here at the sort of turn of the decade, you had uh, some stirrings about, shall we say, about maybe uh, the American and National Leagues maybe not being the only full story maybe to be told, uh, and uh, the opportunity for for more baseball to be played. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that, that that's exactly right. I mean, coming out of the peace agreement between the American and the National League in 1903, the American League, of course, started in 1901, and as a outlaw league itself, eventually, uh, two years later, they, the National League recognized them as equal. Not that they'd had any choice. <laughs> really, clearly, it succeeded as equal. And there was this peace agreement, which essentially created this whole organization that included the minor leagues as well. And there was a whole structure that was set up between the majors, the American League and the National League, and then all the minor leagues and a hierarchy set up and this way that you could draft players that the higher leagues could draft players from the lower leagues, which is really what defined the hierarchy of leagues is who could draft from who. And by, you know, by 1910, by the late, by the late aughts, if you will, 
teams were making a lot of money. Uh, you know, the Giants were rumored to be making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. The Cubs were making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. And people, other people were looking to get into that the same way that the American League owners in, you know, 1900, 1901 thought there was an opportunity to create another league. You know, folks were starting to think the same thing around, you know, around 1910, 1912. And you saw these sort of small, sort of funny leagues start in, you know, in, in regional leagues, but it was only in about 1912 that you really saw people starting to think about uh, putting teams in larger in larger cities. And a guy by the name of John Powers, right, seems to be sort of the guy in which this would ultimately became the Federal League sort of came about. What what was, what was his story? Because um, it also seems too that uh, the idea of a shall we say, third professional league, wasn't really a professional league really to start, was it? No, so there was actually two fellows. You're right. It was, it was Powers who wanted to start something which he called the Columbia League, which is going to include a team in, I think, Chicago and, and St. Louis. And this would have been in 1912. And it sort of petered out when a guy named Otto Stiefel, who became active in the Federal League, that he was going to, who was a rich brewer, uh, was going to help fund the team in St. Louis back, backed out. Uh, then there was a guy named William Whitman, who also in 1912 started what was called the United States League, which had a little bit more success, again, uh, in a number of larger cities, and, but just in, you know, sort of very small ballparks. And that petered out by about May. But no, these, these, these guys at beginning were not looking to compete with the major leagues or even the minor leagues. They were essentially signing guys you know guys who are not uh, under, under contract to organize baseball and by organized baseball i mean the majors and the minors and and any team sort of within that structure and so they were really looking for players outside of that um you know maybe a minor league journeyman who was thinking of retiring they might sign but they were not looking to compete for players with major league baseball because they knew that you know organized baseball would would come down on them really, really hard, and they were just trying to get a little bit of a foothold. Well, why? Um, yeah, I was going to say, why even, why even bother then, right? When it seems like the professional leagues kind of had a stranglehold on things, or, or it, maybe to your point, right? There seems to be there's big business here, or, or certain teams are starting to make some dough. Why not make more of it? Shall we say? Yeah, and I think, you know, there's the sense that if you can start to get established, at some point you can sort of build it up. And, you know, that's really what happened in 1913. So when, when, when John Powers, who you were talking about, started the, he came back the next year and started the Federal League, which was essentially, you know, six teams in, in larger cities. It was, you know, Chicago and St. Louis and um, Cincinnati. They were actually, you know, played across the river in Covington. But they... That that started as sort of a Midwestern, just sort of outlaw, if you will, minor league. And, you know, the major leagues did not take too much notice of it, although any time there was going to be another team playing in Chicago or St. Louis, people were going to, you know, the major leagues were going to worry about it. But for the first, you know, up until about July, it was pretty much just, again, like we were talking about, players without major league, you know, who hadn't, who were not under contract to either the majors or the minors. Then what happened, and, you know, we, <laughs> you and I, you know, we were trading this a little bit in email, is 
the minor league, the, the federal league decided, well, maybe there's a chance here to actually compete as a major league, and they brought in a guy named James Gilmore, who was a little bit more professional to be their president as opposed to Powers. Powers, you know, they were a little bit frustrated that Powers wasn't getting any more notice in the newspapers. The newspapers weren't necessarily carrying their scores. Uh, he was a little bit of a sort of uh, a little bit quirky guy. He had uh, the Chicago play the Chicago team play a game down in his hometown of Sheffield, Illinois, which uh, sort of you know just in a little town because it was his hometown. He once uh, there was a there was a bad ruling by an umpire, and he actually uh, re- required the game to be played over again, which is obviously something that you typically don't do as a league president out of bad umpiring call. So they were the, the owners were getting a little bit frustrated with Powers. And the other thing that happened was that the, you know, organized baseball took a couple players who were under contract to their league. And they, you know, and so the federal league had been scrupulous about not signing or or competing with players who were under contract or even under the reserve clause with major league baseball or, or any minor league team. And then organized baseball came and took a couple players and uh, that sort of set them off as well. Well, this, this, uh, this Gilmore guy, right. Seems like, um, he also kind of, uh, you know, I guess maybe was the true professionalizer, shall we say, of of the entity where, uh, you know, uh, I, he so he was, if I'm not mistaken, he was a minority owner of the Chicago uh, franchise in this uh, uh, in this collective. Uh, and I think right. he was kind of the guy who kind of stepped up to kind of convince this what then became the Federal League uh, professionally the next year. To kind of think about things as a group, right? Not as sort of individual proprietors uh, uh, or or franchise or uh, owners uh, and independent thinkers, so to speak. Is is that a fair statement? Yeah, I mean, you you clearly, if you're going to compete, uh, you clearly have to have a collective mentality if you're going to compete as the upstart. I mean, right? I mean, Ban Johnson is the president of the American League. Clearly controlled his league in 1901. And each owner was not doing what they what might have just been best for their franchise, which is, of course, the total opposite of the National League team, which was in complete league, which was in complete disarray, which was a, one of the reasons the American League could succeed so so dramatically. But yes, he he clearly. Did. And the other thing he understood is that he needed wealthy owners. Other than Stifle in St. Louis, the Federal League did not have a bunch of wealthy owners. I mean, these were owned by. You know, upper and middle class groups, large groups of people. You, you didn't need a whole lot of money to run a minor, a small minor league team in in, in 1913. And so he he recognized that if they were to compete, they were going to need wealthy owners. And and that was clearly, you know, and it would take him another six months to do that. But that was clearly his most important thing for the federal league was bringing in uh, wealthy owners that could compete, you know, and, and help bankroll bankroll the league. And so how did he sort of go about doing so? And, and, and what was the, I guess, what was the treatise, I guess, he was trying to do? Was he basically saying, hey, guys, we've got something here. Let's take it to the next level. Let's get some money and dot, dot, dot. Yeah. So what, what happened essentially is that, you know, there were eight teams in the Federal League like there were in the other two leagues. And, and, and the four teams that competed directly with the majors, um, and, and some of these teams came, came later that, that year, but, you know, Brooklyn and Chicago and, and St. Louis, um, he got owners that were wealthy. So the, the, four, the four teams that competed directly with the major leagues, 
he got wealthy owners. He got Robert Ward, who was probably as wealthy as anybody in baseball and who, who was one of the early innovators in bread manufacturing uh, to own, own the Brooklyn team. He had, um, he had he got Edward Gwinner, who was the son of a contractor and bank owner in Pittsburgh, and then Charles Wiegman in Chicago. And Chicago was clearly the key franchise. And he got Charles Wiegman, who was a restaurateur who owned these, who owned these lunch counters, which at the time would have passed for fast food, sort of the closest thing you had to fast food. And he, he was sort of a, a, a magnet of these, of these lunch counters to own the Chicago team. And Wiegman, like, like Gilmore, was a big personality and was very much a powerful spokesman, uh, powerful spokesman for the league. And then they brought in a guy named Phil Ball to help in St. Louis. Ball was an ice plant manufacturer and an extremely wealthy man as well. So in the other four, four, four cities, Baltimore is probably the best example. These other cities, Baltimore, Indianapolis, they felt Kansas City, they felt like they should be major league. I mean, these were teams that had double-A franchises, which, again, were the highest minor league. But if you were in Baltimore – in 1912, you had a major league team in the National League in the 1890s. You had you were one of the you were in you were in the American League in 1901 until the franchise got attacked by the owners of the Giants and and then the franchise was replaced in New York. So you, you felt like you were a major league. You didn't want a minor league team, and so so Baltimore went out and raised somewhere around 150 thousand dollars from high net worth local people. I mean, there was no principal owner. They brought in, you know, there were, I, I don't know what, I don't remember the number, but it was like 300 people who invested in. And so you had this whole civic pride thing going in these non, the, the cities that at the time weren't major league teams. So it seems like Gilmore is kind of trapped for bear, right? It seems like he was kind of the sort of the, the guy leading sort of the, the charge to kind of make this. I, I, was the approach... Once that money was brought in, and once these owners were sort of sort of in the in the stable, so to speak, um, was the idea to kind of go to either the American or the National League to sort of work out something to get some of these clubs involved, or was it always envisioned to sort of go rogue, so to speak, and create a, an outlaw league and, and and compete directly and in competition with them? You know, I don't think it was sort of that well-defined. I think it was in the non-major league cities, you had these, the, the civic leadership wanted to be major league. And whether that was through something that remained an outlaw league for years or was eventually amalgamated into the, the national, the overall organized baseball, I don't think mattered. And I think a little bit with the same way with the, the owners that were in major league cities. Whether or not, I, I think that they all sort of hoped. I think they looked at the American League as the model. So I think they hoped that eventually they would be incorporated in some way into the major, the organized baseball structure, the Major League Baseball structure. Now, say this, and this is a this is a recurring theme that we've seen in decades later in all kinds of sports, right? To the AFL and football. Uh, hell, the Continental League, even uh, even though it never sort of actually occurred in the early '60s. Uh, oh, a whole host of leagues in the 70s, right? Uh, all challenger leagues, the ABA and the and WHA and even the World Football League for its uh, year and a half of, of, of whatever that was. Uh, all sort of kind of, you know, looking to kind of grow the pie, right? Or or get invited or, or be brought into this, uh, you know, an environment where a small group of owners uh, had a good thing going 
And uh, there was some thought that uh, maybe by expanding or going to other markets, uh, whether that be uh, competition in a, in a current market, right, where there's uh, maybe more demand uh, for product, uh, or uh, an increasing number of other metropolitan areas that uh, fancy themselves as being, quote unquote, major league, if only given the chance. And it seems to me that here's a classic case, and maybe the, the root of such cases, where there wasn't necessarily a lot of impetus uh, from the current status quo to kind of open the doors and let others in. Right. And without getting to the end of the story too quickly, and because there's lots of great stuff to talk about in the middle, I, I would say that the antitrust exemption that baseball got uh, that came out of the court cases at the demise of the federal league uh, was the reason that no baseball league ever could challenge could challenge again on the field whereas in these other sports that did not end up with this de facto uh exemption could uh and and that 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 was a huge thing because the once the battle got going the owners of major league baseball the pressure on players not to sign with the federal league was 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 really really intense, and it was stuff like you would be blacklisted if you signed with the federal league. You were told once you signed a contract and they tried to steal you back that the federal league isn't going to be able to pay you and they're about to fail. I mean, all kinds of things that you can't really do if you're governed by the antitrust laws. Uh, I mean, and again, the blacklist is by far the most powerful of that because the player's obviously then risking his career, whereas. So uh, to my sense, that that was going to be always a huge issue with the Continental League ever getting going, that that, that baseball, if, if they had actually gotten farther along than they had, you, you would have seen organized baseball come down much, much harder than, than, they, than they did sort of in the initial sort of wooing of the owners for the Continental League away to, you know, some of their expansion teams. Yeah, but that's interesting, though, in the Federal League's uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, mindset, right? I mean, the idea of, of challenging uh, these two leagues, right? Basically, of course, you're going to be branded an outlaw league, but but by doing so, right, you 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 take a stand very early on and and you challenge this whole reserve clause in the, in the very first place, right, where, hey, you know, we, we're not bound by these laws, right? I mean, we, we, we just want to see new markets and we've got some opportunity here and, you know, uh, Maybe this is a, a, a better sort of way to force the issue, and, and why not? We'll go after players, and, and we're not going to necessarily restrain them and, 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 and go for it. So it seems like the die was cast as, uh, for the 1914 season as you know, going from something uh, sort of a collective of, of interest to uh, a full-on, out-and-out third league of professional status, uh, rogue as it might have been perceived by the status quo. Yeah, I mean, the new league is always perceived as the rogue by the status quo. I... I the, the the going after the players, the the organized baseball, and Ben Johnson was the president of the American League and probably the most powerful person in in baseball. He, they, the major leagues had a much better strategy. He, he was really a smart guy, and and especially at the time, rather so. I mean, just the quick re, re, reminder: the reserve clause is the clause in the player's contract that says that. At the end of the contract, they have to then re-sign. The club has the right to re-sign the player at essentially the same terms, but the salary will be negotiated. So which essentially binds you forever. If every time the contract is over, you then have to re-sign at the player at the club's option, you are essentially bound to the club forever. Now, the courts almost always held that that clause was non-binding, but if there was no competing league, it didn't matter because 
nobody, there was no one else to sign you. So once the Federal League would sign players after their contract was over and they were only bound with by the reserve clause, essentially they were allowed to do that. Um, historically, like in the American League or back in the Players League issue in 1890, the owners of the major leagues would, would sue and say, well, gee, you know, they're bound by this reserve clause. And the courts would always say, no, they're not. The reserve clause isn't binding. What, what they did this time is, is they, once they would try and keep the player from signing, but if the player signed with the Federal League, the owners would go, go to these players and say, it doesn't matter that you sign with the Federal League. You can't play there. You're going to be blacklisted. They're going to fail. You know, they go. They, they sent emissaries to the parents of some of these players. I mean, the pressure was tremendous, and they'd get the player to sign back with their with their other team, just ignoring the federal league contract, and then force the federal league to come sue baseball, as opposed to going the other way, which was really brilliant. And so you you were forcing the, the federal league to come sue you all the time. And they just didn't have the legal staff or the money to sort of go do all that. Well, it didn't seem to prevent a bunch of major league players from from jumping to the federal league, right? Because uh, better pay and 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 better opportunity, and and maybe even a bit of uh, uh, passion and uh, belief in something bigger than uh, just simply their their playing days, right? Yes, but I mean, I guess my my, my point to a certain degree is that. The, the, the Federal League never got as many players as they thought they would or should. Um, I mean, they, they, they would sign guys. They'd announce these signings, which was probably a mistake. And then organized baseball would realize who they signed and come back and just brutally go back after them to try and sign them. I mean, Bill Killifer was the most famous court case of this. So he was the catcher on the Phillies that the Federal League signed. And then the Phillies came and said, we'll, we'll, we'll match that. We'll give you a whole lot of money. Come back to us. So he basically broke the contract he'd signed with the Federal League and came back. And when the Federal League signed over breaking that contract, the courts kind of used, you know, a little bit of, you know, sort of weak logic to claim that, in fact, even though the, the reserve clause that he had jumped on wasn't really binding, the Federal League came with, quote, unclean hands and, and that he, in fact, could stay with Philadelphia, which so that you had this situation where um, the Federal League would sign guys and then they'd bounce back. And so that in 1914, you know, they they, they probably had of their 100 and, you know, 180 to 200 players, probably 50 that had some major league experience, but probably only about 10 or 15, at least for the beginning of the year, that were established major leaguers. Interesting. You know, so, 400 so, at-bats or more and a couple, you know, 200 innings pitched kind of thing. Well, it didn't well, stop people like Charles Wiegman, though, from spending some money to try to get some players, regardless of their entanglements maybe with uh, uh, current teams. <laughs> You're right. I mean, the guy that really set the deal off was Joe Tinker. Uh, I mean, he signed Joe Tinker in December of 13, and that's when the Federal League knew, or the baseball, organized baseball knew they had a war on their hands. He signed Tinker for three years at $12,000 a year, which was just a monster salary for the time, especially for three years. Of course, the National League had totally screwed up Joe Tinker. He had, um, you know, he had been a ma the manager of Cincinnati, a player manager of Cincinnati. The Cincinnati had fired him because he was, had some conflicts with ownership. Um, he was about to sell him for $25,000 to Brooklyn. That was all sort of this funny agreement that they had it. 
at, at the National League meet, at the winter meetings where you know the writers were egging on Ebbets and Charles Ebbets, the owner of Brooklyn, by telling um, by telling the owner of Cincinnati that Ebbets didn't have twenty five thousand dollars, and then Ebbets saying yes, I do, and it was just very screwed up and done very uh, sort of on a slapdash kind of basis. It's, and, and so Tinker was kind of in limbo land as they were trying to figure out who was going to buy him and pay how much. And then all of a sudden, Wiegman jumps in, pays, you know, and signs Tinker. And, and that clearly was the key signing and changed the nature of the battle. And then Tinker and Wiegman went off together to try and sign additional players for the Federal League. And Gilmore went out, was out at that point lining up these owners. Uh, and so by the time the season started in April, yeah, they, the Federal League had a decent group of players, although not as much as they would have liked, uh, you know, minus Bill Kellefer and four pretty wealthy owners. Before we get to the uh, other teams in the league as it, as it gets going in earnest as a professional league in 14, more on Wiegman. Wiegman is he's um, obviously a, a crucial figure both both in this league and and, and down the road, as we'll, we'll sort of get to. But um, it seems like he uh, uh, not only uh, put a, bu- a bunch of money behind uh, his team, but he also seemed to be sort of uh, very promotionally adept, maybe from his his work at, at owning all these uh, these cafeterias, but uh, maybe give a little sense of sort of kind of the stops that he pulled or didn't stop or didn't stop to pull or whatever, whatever analogy I'm trying to throw out there. What, what, what uh, efforts did he kind of undertake to kind of get his team sort of on the Chicago baseball landscape? Because, you know, to, to remember, right, the idea that the, there are two other teams competing in Chicago at the time, right, the Cubs and the White Sox, both pretty successful teams. Yeah, he, I mean, he, he I mean, having sort of being able to advertise the team and just all of these restaurants of his was, was a huge advantage. I mean, the other thing is, is don't forget that at the time the Cubs played on what was the, you know, the, the White Sox played on the South side and the Cubs played on what was at the time sort of this old West side, um, you know, several miles due West of downtown of the loop. And this, the, where, where Wiegman built what, what is now Wrigley field was called Wiegman park at the time. Uh, on you know on this north side, it had just been uh, there had just been a couple of L lines that had been sent up there, and there was a, pro- a population of about eight hundred thousand people in this sort of northern area of Chicago, which was bigger than pretty much any city in the country except for New York. So there was this huge untapped population recently served by the L, and he did a really good job of getting this of getting his park built, there was all kinds of shenanigans from organized baseball trying to buy little pieces of land and fighting the, fighting at City Hall that he couldn't do certain things. And, of course, me, Wiegman would, you know, they'd give out season tickets to people, important people in the neighborhood to get him to vote the right way. Uh, so he did a lot of stuff to get Wrigley Field built. I mean, he was he, he was very much connected with, within the city and obviously used all those connections to build the park and try and advertise it. Yeah, it also seems to me he also took some uh, some effort to sort of make the uh, the park, the new park uh, experience, uh, 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 a better and different one from uh, his uh, other major league brethren, right? With the idea, I guess, novel at the time, of uh, of trying to take concessionaires sort of out of the stands and 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 interrupting perhaps the the sort of flow and the the view of the game and 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 building actually concession stands behind the stands, right, where people right. could actually go and. And get food and, and stuff, you know, without sort of being bothered uh, by the hawking in the midst of the game. <laughs> right. No, you're right. I mean, he was he was a very novel guy, and uh, 
Chicago was definitely the key franchise in that league. It was it drew the best. It, it, they clearly outdrew the Cubs in 1914, and would have been the only team competing with a major league team that would have outdrawn their major league competitor. Yeah, he was he was a fascinating guy. All right, just when it was getting interesting, let's uh, let's bring this uh, to a grinding halt, shall we? Ah, just kidding. Uh, we got to pay the bills around here, and uh, our friends at Audible have been very helpful in attempting to allow us to pay some of those bills, and uh, we want to call them out now uh, and remind you that a free audiobook download is yours for the taking, and also a free one-month uh, subscription to the service uh, of Audible at audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Again, audibletrial.com slash goodseats for your free one-month trial of the Audible service and, interestingly, most interestingly, a free audiobook download for you to enjoy. 180,000 titles and growing uh, every day to choose from, and there's uh, absolutely no excuse to not find at least one title amongst that uh, cavernous uh, selection uh, available to you that uh, you won't find to be enjoyable and uh, and good for the soul, including uh, a couple of books that might be interesting to our audience. And yes, some new ones, frankly, uh, that I'm finally listening to. One that I'm listening to right now uh, is by Carson Cunningham. It's narrated by Paul Bamer, and it's called Underbelly Hoops, Adventures in the CBA, a.k.a. the Crazy Basketball Association, which is really, of course, about uh, the Continental Basketball Association, which for many years uh, was sort of this ragtag minor league uh, of the NBA. And that's uh, it's a book I'm about two chapters into right now, and uh, hopefully maybe a guest will get uh, for a future episode. Also, uh, in my queue, next up, uh, is another guest that I'd like to get. Uh, and her book that she wrote is also uh, narrated by her. Her name is Jeannie Buss. And of course, Jeannie is the daughter of Jerry Buss, of course, the uh, wildly successful founder of the Los Angeles Lakers and the LA Forum. And Jeannie is, uh, is clearly today the brains behind uh, the Los Angeles Lakers today. Uh, she and her brothers were uh, active, of course, in things like, along with her father, uh, world team tennis, uh, the major indoor soccer league with the L.A. Lasers, all kinds of stuff. So uh, her book is next on my list. That's called Laker Girl. And that, too, is available on Audible. And again, it's one of the uh, the many thousands of titles that you can choose from uh, when you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And again, you, too, can get your free audiobook download to give it a try. Perhaps one of those two or perhaps one of the other 180,000 titles uh, available to you as well. Uh, give it a try. Audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Thanks for listening. And. Back to our conversation. Let's talk about the teams uh, themselves, because uh, what, what I never really understood is sort of the, the names of them. You mentioned, uh, so the Baltimore, there's Brooklyn, Ball, uh, Buffalo, the Chicago team, Indianapolis, Kansas City, uh, which had been relocated from uh, what was uh, uh, suburban Cincinnati and Kentucky, uh, Pittsburgh and St. Louis. But um, what I'm uh, confused about is is sort of the naming convention, right? So when you look back, you see the names like uh, the Whales of Chicago, right? Or the Buffalo Blues, right? But uh, in 1914, though, um, did the teams actually have those names or... or What's this Fed name thing? Because I, I can't really understand the convention of the names of these teams in 1914 when the league was getting going. Uh, the most people call them 
buff feds. They just put feds at the end, bald feds, chai feds for Chicago, slew feds for St. Louis. Uh, for, so the whales, for example, were actually were, it was done at the end of 1914 as a way to try and generate some interest in their team, additional interest in the league. They had like a poll, you know, and the way they do it today for an expansion team, right? They ask everybody to send in names, and a bunch of people sent in names, and um, Chicago, in you know, decided to, to go with the whales. Um, most people still just referred to them as sort of the start of the city, and then feds. Uh, Kansas City for was the Cawfeds, uh, so you know I mean why, they, why some of these had names, but why, why, it was why was that? Do you think? I mean, it was just because they just didn't have time and couldn't think about it, or they or they wanted to get fans involved and and maybe you know see the product and then sort of get involved and then name the teams afterwards, or was it just maybe they forgot to, to name it? I'm just curious as like why that was the case. Well, I think it was mainly that the press just sort of. I mean, I think at the time, names were a lot less, in general, names were a lot less formal than they are today, right? I mean, you had, you know, the, the, the New York Yankees, for example, were called the Highlanders and the Yankees, and they were sort of, both those names were, were, were in process at the time. And I, I just think that it was, it was much less formal how teams were named, and it was, there was really whatever they were called in the press at the time, and they were... You know, you were the buff feds or the chai feds as opposed to whatever you necessarily wanted to call yourself. But and I, I don't think that was unique to the federal league. I, I think at the time, again, names were much more informal in general. You know, right? You, you had, you know, like when uh, Wilbur Robinson was hired as manager of Brooklyn, all of a sudden they were the Robins. And, but people still called them the Dodgers, as, the trolley Dodgers as well. So I, I just think the whole thing was a little more informal i guess if i use that word for the fourth time in this uh, paragraph no that's interesting um uh so on the field though uh pretty competitive right yeah i mean i I don't want to overstate it i mean they were clearly better than the minor leagues but they were clearly a notch below the major leagues i mean i guess i'd compare maybe to wartime baseball uh you know to be a major league i think you know, I think playing ability obviously matters. I think, you know, to define a major league, there's other criteria as well, such as, you know, do the, does your, do the major leagues regard you as a threat and do they recognize you as a major league? Does the press recognize you as a major league? Um, you know, are you viewed as a, do you have control over your players, right? I mean, which is the difference between a major league and a minor league, and that a minor league doesn't have control over their players, that bigger leagues can draft them and take them away. I think on all of those, it clearly, it clearly is a, was a major league. Um, you know, I, and again, I think the talent-wise, I mean, I, I think the best team in the, in the federal league probably was no better than, you know, the worst team in the, in the majors, but... Um, Again, I guess I'd compare it sort of to war, wartime baseball in terms of its talent level. So, um, but but uh, clearly it was also doing pretty well at the gate, right? I think in Chicago especially was an interesting story, right? Because you had the Chai Feds uh, outdrawing actually the White Sox. Excuse me, the uh, they were outdrawing Cubs for sure, and maybe the White Sox. I mean, the problem is that attendance, there's no real good attendance figures. Uh, the, the major leagues sent what they call clockers 
to the to these games to actually like sit in the stands and record how many fans were there, and they came up with these numbers that were clearly too low. Uh, then you had the Federal League itself, which didn't really release uh, attendance figures, but at the end of the year would release numbers that were wildly inflated. There's a couple of ways to sort of back into what the numbers were, and if you based on the, there, there were there were some papers at the Hall of Fame based in the in the Herman papers that you can figure out sort of what the Kansas City attendance was for about the first two thirds of the season because one of the major league teams got a hold of that from the from the team itself and then you can sort of back into it from like from Baltimore which as part of some of these court cases had income statements released and if you you can sort of figure out that if the average ticket price was 70 cents and the visitor was getting a quarter you can kind of sort of back into what their attendance ought to have been and and the best guesses are that um you know the the attendance for the for the averaged you know per team for the federal league was probably around 130 to 140,000 fans for the year and you know the national league in in 20 in, in 1914 I think was around you know, 213,000. So it's probably, you know, you're looking at two-thirds of what the major leagues was. Um, but I think that the other interesting thing is that where you had the federal league competing with a minor league team, like in Baltimore, for example, you would have games where there would be 10,000 people showing up at a federal league game and 200 people showing up across the street at the, at the, American, at the international league game. Same kind of thing in Buffalo, but not to the same degree. These the cities where you had where you could say you had a major league team versus a minor league team, the fans resoundingly went to the federal league. Now they didn't draw, you didn't draw as well in Buffalo as the team would, you know, as a major league team would in Detroit, for example, but the fans who were going to games clearly and, and by huge numbers were picking the federal league over the, the minor league team that was there at the time. So there was evidence or some appetite that that in these uh, these cities that didn't have uh, American or National League franchises, that there was a level of top-tier major league opportunity there. Oh, absolutely. I mean, clearly the, the, the cities viewed their team as their federal league team as major league. And they clearly chose them when they went to games over the minor league team. That that was most clear in Baltimore and Buffalo, but it was certainly true in Kansas City and Indianapolis, uh, if not quite to the same degree. But but very clearly their their attendance was much stronger, and those cities viewed themselves as major league cities, which was huge for those guys. Yeah, and that, that's interesting, too, because you've got sort of like – it's a dual-headed uh, sort of uh, uh, approach, right? You're trying to compete competitively and 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 truly be accorded major league status or at least uh, confusion uh, in the cities that that had a uh, an American League and a National League or in some cases like Chicago, both franchises, where you're also at the same time trying to, I guess, till some uh, some new soil – uh, with the Baltimores and the Buffaloes of the world. I, I stand corrected before I mentioned the, the uh, Chai Feds of 1914. Uh, they actually outdrew the Cubs, uh, but not the White Sox. But, so if you think about it, right, that's for a fledgling league that didn't exist the year before, was was arguably amateur in status the year before. And that thus uh, and uh, branded an outlaw league by the two incumbents. Uh, the fact that they were the number two of three professional baseball franchises in Chicago 
that's not a that, that's a that's that's a pretty good showing uh, for Mr. Wiegman and friends. Absolutely. I mean, I think that, that, that Chicago was clearly the the flagship of the Federal League. And if everybody could have run their team as well as Wiegman, uh, I think you would have had a better chance of success. I, I think Chicago was unique in that the Cubs, by, by that time, were owned by a guy named Charles Murphy, who was forced actually to sell the team before 1914 because he was so disliked by the other owners and the fans. I mean, so the Cubs was were just a very much a franchise in disarray. And then and the White Sox were, you know, the, 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 you know were, were, quite a few, were quite a few miles south, obviously. And so I think there was room, uh, there was clearly room for that franchise in the north side of Chicago where you may not have had the same kind of thing in Pittsburgh or St. Louis where the stadiums were a little bit closer together, and it was a little bit harder to, to differentiate it, and the teams were generally, you know, Pittsburgh was was a very beloved franchise, and St. Louis, you were competing with two others, and it was probably too small a, a town at that even at that point to have three major league to have three major league franchises. All right. Well, let, let's talk about sort of the aftermath of, of the 1914 season, because um, and, and we kind of hinted at it before, but maybe this is the right time to sort of bring them up. But we mentioned the Baltimore Terrapins. Uh, which uh, were uh, if uh, just as if not more important, maybe not as a as a powerhouse franchise and attendance and all that kind of stuff, but as a uh, uh, I don't know, I was as a, a a metaphor for the league itself uh, and its uh, consternation with the idea of uh, the reserve clause and some of the other sort of issues, the antitrust uh, concerns, the ability for uh, others who wanted into the professional big-time Major League Baseball game to get into it. Um, do you maybe want to sort of sow some of those uh, those seeds? I, I, I'm also interested in the Terrapins for a uh, potentially selfish reason because uh, the guy who was the leading shareholder of that team was a guy named Ned Hanlon, uh, obviously uh, right. related with my surname. I'm not sure how related I am. I need to go back. and <laughs> But as a Hall of Famer, I'll, I'll take some uh, a little bit of, of shine to that, that uh, perhaps I was uh, distantly related to Mr. Hanlon. Um, but, um, uh, the idea of that team actually was, it was very community oriented from what I understand. A lot of, uh, a lot of shareholders sort of spread around sort of the Baltimore metropolitan area. Um, but, uh, it became right. The, uh, and I'm, I'm curious as to how it became the, uh, the, the, the leading, um, uh, I don't know, uh, buttress, uh, around the, the federal leagues thinking about what it could and should be relative to its, uh, it's uh, uh, closed uh, competitors uh, in the American and National Leagues. Well, the, the Baltimore of the four teams that you know were were not that that were owned sort of on a community basis, where you had multiple investors. I mean, the Indianapolis team in 1914 was the same way. I mean, they had I think Indianapolis actually had like 600 investors. Baltimore had less than that. Baltimore raised the most money. I think it was $164,000, if I'm not mistaken. I'd have to go back and double check from, you know, you know, to capitalize their team, build the stadium. I mean, you just had this tremendous civic interest in it. And again, you had had a team that had, that had been major league twice in the last 25 years. And so you had this incredible sense of 
We've been cheated out of a team twice. You know, we aren't going to be cheated out of a team again. This is our team. We're a major league city. You know, Baltimore at the time was, I, I, it was, you know, was was one of the top ten largest cities in the country, and and so this was this was just it's, it was it was a very civic kind of thing that we want to be major league and we're going to make sure that we hold on to this. Ned Hanlon, of course, had been a manager of the team in the 1890s when they had, you know, been basically the best team in the National League for a number of years, won three pennants in a row and um, was a was a huge celebrity in the town. I mean, this was, this was a big deal uh, to get their major league team back. And you know, we're jumping ahead a little bit now to the end of the 1915 season. We can step back wherever you'd like to take this, but that's where they were the ones who, when the Federal League settled, when the Federal League owners settled with the major leagues to go out of business and take a payoff, they wouldn't settle for their settlement, if you will, uh, because they didn't want they didn't want to take money and go away. They wanted to be a major league. They wanted to be a major league city. Well, I, I uh, that, and that's fair. So we can we can go back to the the team specifically uh, in a minute. But um, but it's my understanding that that off season though that fourteen fifteen off season was kind of where uh, the league though uh, kind of started this whole process about going after uh, the AL and the NL with uh, an antitrust sort of lawsuit uh, uh, dimension to things. Is that is that, is that right? Yeah, so what happened, so essentially um, there was some hope for a peace agreement after the 1914 season. Actually, Wiegman was, you know, if, if Wiegman and, and Ward and Brooklyn and Ball and St. Louis could have all been given the rights to buy a major league franchise, they probably would have abandoned the Federal League at that point and, and gone on. And that, that eventually fell through. And once it fell through, the Federal League sort of rededicated itself to pushing ahead. Why, and so before so, you go further, why do you think that fell through? Because the leagues didn't sort of see the threat as viable. They didn't think the federal league could last another year. Uh, hubris, all of it. Well, all of it. I mean, essentially, the Charles Murphy in Chicago came back and basically, um, Wiegman was going to buy the Cubs, and Murphy had supposedly sold his interest before the 1914 season, but it turned out he still actually had a little interest in the team and refused to sell, and so that the deal with Wiegman was going to fall through. Also, Robert Ward, who owned Brooklyn, and again was was sort of the sec was was with the wealthiest guy in the league at the time. Um, he was going to have the rights to either buy the Boston Braves or the Yankees, who were then owned by Frank Farrell and. Um, William Devery, who were a couple of sort of unsavory uh, Tammany guys that were in the process of running out of money, and the American League was looking for someone else to buy it, but, um, you know, there was some objection to getting a Federal League owner in the American League. Uh, Ben Johnson didn't like that, and then at the time, as you, you know, the Yankees were actually playing in the polo grounds, the Giants Stadium, and the Giants owners didn't want a Federal League outlaw owner playing there. So it was, there, there was actually pretty good support. I mean, most of the owners were ready to, um, to, to let them buy in, but there was pushback. And then, of course, the other Federal League teams that would have been left out, they, 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 once they sort of realized what was going on, they brought tremendous pressure as well to bear, you know, Baltimore. I mean, these other cities that would have their deal was basically going to be they were going to amalgamate with the minor league team in their city. So Buffalo, the two Buffalo, the Buffalo International League team and Federal League team would have sort of amalgamated, and the owners of the Federal League Buffalo team would have been able to take over. So there was just there was just a lot of stuff going on, and it would have had to happen relatively quickly. And 
once it really got close to happening, there was enough kind of, you know, problems with the deal or, or people that could stick a pin in it that it just it quickly faded away. But um, people thought it was going to happen. I mean, Ed Barrow, who, again, was the president of the International League, basically in the International League meetings in November said, we think that we're going to have peace here. So a lot of people thought it was about to happen. Could have been wishful thinking, too. Well, I, I guess uh, so because you, you had to, you even had some new owners come in in, in the midst, right? So I, I'm curious as it either became before, during, or, or sort of after the determination that uh, peace was not going to break out before the 1915 season. Um, this guy Harry Sinclair, right? He seems to be a pretty interesting cat in all of this mixture. Um, and just to so go back, the Indianapolis uh, Hoosiers franchise actually won the 1914. A title beating out the uh, the shy feds uh, by a game and a half for the pennant, um, and uh, however Indianapolis did not seem to be a big draw at the gate, and I think that's sort of why Sinclair was uh, uh, brought into the mix to maybe take that franchise and 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 do something better with it. But maybe you can sort of give a little bit of background as to who this Harry Ford Sinclair char- character <laughs> is and was. Sure. So that that's an interesting story. So, so Sinclair. So essentially, once the peace settlement failed, or or, or sort of you know kind of went away because there was enough of people that could throw roadblocks in the way of it, the both sides sort of went out to try and bolster themselves for the coming year. And part of that was going out to find new rich owners. And in fact, both of both sides, Gilmore. And Wiegman actually met with Jacob Rupert, who went on to own the Yankees at French Lick, Indiana, where where the where the where the hot springs were that Rupert would would vacation at, and Ben Johnson of the of the American League sort of managed to talk Rupert into buying the Yankees, uh, but both were going after Rupert. Both both sides are trying to bolster their ownership with rich guys, and a guy named um, Pat Powers, who had been a longtime executive, he also who who disliked organized baseball for his own reasons. He had been forced out as president of the International League. He he was friend, he he knew he knew Gilmore and he knew Sinclair and Sinclair was just at this time I mean he was he was really a wealthy guy he had um, basically an oil it's now Sinclair Oil um, he had he was a rich oil guy in his late thirties looking for something fun to do and and Powers basically talked him into taking a shot at the Federal League and you know Powers was like was going to be you know the president of the team and Sinclair was going to be the owner and the first team they were going to take was Kansas City which essentially owed a whole bunch of money to the league and the league essentially declared it bankrupt and owned by the league Kansas City didn't want to lose their team and actually went to court and claimed that the league couldn't take the franchise back and the court ruled for Kansas City so all of a sudden you had this guy Sinclair who wanted to move a team to New York and Powers, for his reasons, his own reasons, wanted to put the team in Newark. Uh, Powers was from northern New Jersey, um, and he felt like between Newark and New Jersey City, there was a population of about 600,000 people, and there was a real opportunity to put a team in, in, in Newark. And so th- you, you had Sinclair now, who had, you, you had a guy with money, but you didn't have a franchise. So then at the last minute, they kind of went to Indianapolis and managed to, and Indianapolis also owed, owed a whole bunch of money to the league. Robert Ward in Brooklyn had been funding both of these teams. And what happened to a certain degree in Indianapolis is Ward had been funding Indianapolis and part of for giving all this money to Indianapolis to keep him going, they were supposed to send him some good players. Well, once Indianapolis realized that they had a chance of winning the pennant, they said, no, we're not going to send you any good players. And so some of the directors there, the actual sort of 
were, were funding the money, were funding it out of their own pocket. And so they were, by the time that the season ended, they were pretty much out of dough between both themselves and the and and all the all the preferred shareholders, all all the people who invested in the team, you know, if you if you get you know if you if you're selling the shares in your team for a thousand dollars or five hundred dollars, those people aren't going to sort of keep wanting to pony up every time there's a shortage. So anyway, that team was willing to be sold to Sinclair. Sinclair basically paid off about eighty thousand dollars of Indianapolis debts to acquire that franchise and move it to Newark. But it was it was a little bit dicey there at the end because they thought they had Kansas City and Kansas City stopped them at the last end by getting the courts to rule that uh, that they couldn't take their franchise away. But he went all in, right? I mean, he um, he built a new stadium uh, in Harrison, uh, right on the uh, slash Newark border there. Um, yep. He went after John McGraw of the Giants with a with a gigantic contract, which you know McGraw obviously a legend uh, in the making and obviously down the road as Hall of Famer who uh, famously rejected it, right? So uh, proving he couldn't be bought, so to speak. But uh, it didn't seem like Sinclair was uh, was done just uh, absorbing debt and moving a franchise, right? He was. He seemed like he'd be doubling down on something that uh, he thought obviously would be would be uh, something going into the 1915 season. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he, he clearly thought that this was this was something that, 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 that could work. And then Powers was a baseball guy. So he had a baseball guy. Uh, on on his side, it, it, was, it was just an interesting. Supposedly, he offered McGraw uh, six hundred thousand, or excuse me, a hundred thousand dollars salary. And I guess you know, if he really offered that, it's hard to see McGraw turning that down, just given the amount and the and the prestige that would have come with that. But he clearly came after McGraw very hard. And yeah, he 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 was one of the early sort of. Uh, frustrations within the federal league is that you had Robert Ward who felt like he was owed these players from Indianapolis. And then you had Sinclair who bought the team and had just like come up with $80,000 to bail out Indianapolis. And so there was actually this debate between Ward and Sinclair within the federal league over which players uh, should be, you know, Sinclair would be, Ward would be able to take off of his team. And both of them, one of them saying, I've been bankrolling this league for a year now. These players are mine. And Sinclair saying, I'm spending all this money to try and, you know, put a team in Newark and now I'm losing my players. So yeah, this was, he was, he was all in and these owners wanted to win. Uh, There's no question, like you were talking about earlier, that there's obviously a huge value to, being able to sort of run the league as an institution and fight as a team, but there's no question these owners were in it to win too. And do you think they were not only in it to win, but also do you give them credit or, or any of these guys credit for any kind of foresight to say, all right, even if this league doesn't sort of last more than a few years, something something good for us perhaps melding into the American League or the National League will result and it will have been worth it? Or is that giving them too much credit? I think you're giving them too much credit for foresight. I think they thought it was going to work. Um, I think Ward, I think, you know, I think by the middle of 15, jumping ahead a little bit, I think it was clear that this whole thing wasn't going to work out the way they wanted it to and that the losses were just mounting and that they weren't hurting the American and the National Leagues enough that those guys were ever really going uh, to give in. I'm actually surprised that the federal league got as much as it did when they finally settled. But no, I, I think they felt like they were going to make it as a, either a third major league or be amalgamated into the majors. And 
uh, that was that was their expectation, and if that wasn't going to work, there was just going to be a big money loss, like you know we were talking about earlier, like you know the World Football League or something. So what what was the uh, what was the reaction of the American League and the National League as the 1915 uh, Federal League season got underway? I mean, were they kind of perplexed that uh, this thing was not uh, they couldn't kill it off and or they couldn't undermine it or they couldn't come to some kind of agreement? I mean, it almost feels like uh, maybe it redoubled their efforts to kind of figure out a way to knock it off by the end of the the, the 15 season. Well, I, I think they were actually getting they were they were feeling not as. I mean, they, they were nervous, but I think they kind of knew what they were up against. I think it was the minor leagues that were really getting completely demolished um, by the, especially the International League. So just to go back where we and I were chatting just a minute ago, sort of after the, the peace agreement, the Federal League redoubled their efforts to sign a bunch of players for the next year, most famously Walter Johnson. But there was another 15 players as well that they thought that they had signed. So for Walter Johnson, they actually signed Johnson um, to a gigantic contract uh, for something, it was seventeen thousand five hundred dollars a year for something like three years. So they had signed him, and Major League Base and, and Major League Baseball came in and said, "You don't really want to do this. Um, we'll give you more money, uh, you know, and oh, by and, and you should re-sign with us." And, and, and Johnson essentially just ignored or repudiated his federally contract and signed back with organized baseball. The same thing happened with about five or six other guys, and the federal league that that's what led to their antitrust. They basically said, "This is crazy. We can't sort of sue on every single one of these. We have the owner, the the players, and the owners manage to drag these things out in court. It's hugely expensive, um, and so that's why in January of 1915 they filed this antitrust suit against organized baseball, basically listing all of these, sort of trying to consolidate all of these things where organized baseball had clearly violated contracts, violated the antitrust laws, and they filed uh, with famously Judge Landis, thinking he was a trust-busting judge and would uh, help them. And, and also there was this hope that he liked guys like Three Finger Brown and, and Joe Tinker, who were obviously, not obviously, but were both in the Federal League at the time. And so between that and his trust-busting, they hoped that he would you know, rule in their favor. And as we know, they were sadly disappointed. Uh, before we delve into that part, um, let's talk about the actual season, because it seemed like it was a, a, a crazily competitive season in the Federal League uh, with an interesting asterisk of uh, of uh, baseball history in terms of who won the uh, pennant that year. <laughs> You're right. So going into the last weekend of the season, you had uh, Pittsburgh was so going so going to the last weekend of the season you had Pittsburgh was a half game up on St. Louis and a game and a half up on on Chicago and so there was a doubleheader scheduled between Chicago and Pittsburgh on Sunday or excuse me on Saturday and one game scheduled on Sunday so Pitt, so Chicago swept Pittsburgh on Saturday uh to take the lead by percentage points and the, the fascinating thing here, so whoever would win the game Sunday at that point would win the pennant, and it was going to be by percentage points because they didn't play the same number of games. Essentially, if games were rained out or there were ties, there would be a lot of ties at the time because games would be called because of darkness. Those games were generally not replayed. So you could have 
again, teams with essentially equivalent records but separated by percentage points. Um, Charles Wiegman, who was the owner of Chicago, was brilliant. And because he was buddies with Gilmore, they, they, they basically said, well, gee, this game on Friday that we were supposed to play with Pittsburgh, that game was rained out. So on Sunday, we should play a doubleheader with Pittsburgh. And the way the math worked, so Chicago only had to split the doubleheader. Before, whoever won the one game would have won the pennant. Pittsburgh protested and basically said, that's ridiculous. We don't replay rainouts. You can't have this doubleheader on Sunday. But Gilmore ruled for his buddy Wiegman and basically said, no, there's going to be a doubleheader on Sunday, and if you don't play, you're forfeiting the pennant. So Pittsburgh, of course, played. They won the first game. So then it was a winner-take-all second game, which Chicago won and won the pennant essentially by, you know, point zero zero what it was, one percentage points. I'm trying to remember what the – what the uh, what the I think it was uh, – uh, I mean, they won by percentage points. 566 to 565. It was the uh, – <laughs> the, 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 the Yeah, and, uh, and, and partially because Wiegman managed to get that uh, extra game in there uh, through his buddy Gilmore. Great, great, great ending. I mean, Chicago, like, had 35 – I mean – Chicago was clearly the place. They had 35,000 people. It, it, I, mean, I mean, Wrigley was – Wrigley. We call it Wrigley. Wigman Park was overflowing. I mean, it would just sound like it was a great atmosphere. And it's too – you know, if you're going to have an end of a, of a league, that's a great way to end it with controversy and tons of fans and excitement. Yeah, and let's just uh, – to, to, for uh, posterity, let's make sure that we uh, – the, the Wales had – were 86 and 66 for a 566 winning percentage. Uh, the uh, St. Louis uh, finished uh, with a 565 winning percentage. And Pittsburgh uh, had one game uh, – I think it was one game behind or had not played or whatever because of this uh, uh, the uh, uh, the scheduling imbalance and they finished at a 562 winning percentage. So you really had three teams that effectively finished in a kind of almost like a three way tie, but was uh, split by uh, a mere uh, percentage point or two. And uh, it's probably the I guess closest to, to, to the extent that the made, that uh, the Baseball Hall of Fame uh, considers it. Uh, the closest race uh, ever in the history of, uh, of the sport of baseball. Frankly, well, I, I don't think mathematically you could be any closer. I mean, effectively, you had the two top teams had the you know had, had, had essentially the same record. I mean, it, it was um, yeah, it, it, it was it, it was it was a great ending, and uh, especially when you figure in that you know sort of all the machinations to try and get that extra game against Pittsburgh. But given all that, though, it would seem that okay that that you know there's some some good stuff here. But um, it, it, it's clearly you know maybe maybe it was in, as you said before was kind of unraveling ahead of time, and it was almost sort of uh, maybe sort of in motion that uh, this league was not going to continue uh, past this 1915 season. So maybe this is the time to sort of bring back uh, the uh, the antitrust uh, lawsuit and 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 all of that that was already in motion. Uh, but but obviously also helped uh, maybe sort of bring cooler heads uh, to the table. Uh, and I guess it wasn't a merger per se, but it sure feels a lot like it uh, going into the offseason of 15-16. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's basically with, with all the, without, being, without being subject to the antitrust rules, I think the federal league realized that 
it was really, really hard to be able to sign ball players. I mean, just given the, the pressure that organized baseball could bring and then just essentially breaking con- having them break federally contracts and federally forcing them to sort of sue on every single case. And so the federal league just, I mean, their players in, 20, in 1915 were, were good, but they hadn't gotten sort of the bump that they had hoped to get with this sort of like this 20 sort of person raid at the end, you know, with, with, with Walter Johnson and Paul Parrott and Ivy Wingo and other guys they had lined up that sort of then went back. And by the second half of 2015, excuse me, I keep saying, of 1915, the Federal League just wasn't drawing. In Pittsburgh, they were, they were drawing in the hundreds of fans if they were lucky. Uh, some of the teams were dropping their bleacher seats to 10 cents from a quarter to try and get people. Brooklyn was just not drawing at all compared to the Dodgers. And so it was hard to see where they were going to be able to, to, to make it, given the expenses of being a major league. And then you had this antitrust case. So Judge Landis, I think, you know, he, he was a trust buster. He knew baseball was a trust, but he also liked, you know, baseball. I mean, he was, you know, I mean, everybody believed organized baseball when they said that if anything else came up, it would destroy it. I mean, he felt like if he ruled, I think, to a certain degree for the Federal League, it would, you know, be really bad for organized baseball. So what he did is, as you know, he just didn't rule. He just sat on the thing. So you had the Federal League waiting for this ruling that that organized baseball was violating the antitrust laws. And, you know, Landis just didn't rule. He just kept sort of postponing any sort of ruling. And and, and so as the year... 1915 went on, the Federal League was continuing to suffer huge losses. And then the other thing that happened is in October of 1915, Robert Ward died. So essentially, he, he was bankrolling all these other teams. Sinclair was helping. And once you didn't have Ward to bankroll all these other teams, again, teams like Kansas City, and at the time, mostly Kansas City was the, mostly then, but it also was a little bit of Buffalo, you just and it had been in Indianapolis the year before, it was just hard to see where the Federal League was going to be able to go on. They weren't going to have someone to help bankroll them, and it wasn't clear where they were going to be able to sort of get players and, and, and keep going. So it seems like almost that, that uh, Landis's uh, uh, indecision or lack of, a, of a, uh, a time frame to sort of make a decision almost uh, encouraged uh, the, the – uh, the two sides organized baseball and the federal league to kind of uh, almost sort of backhandedly maybe actually brought them closer together to kind of iron out some kind of agreement. No. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, I, I think that had, had he ruled that baseball was violating the antitrust rules, I think you would have seen a lot of players jump because they would not have had to worry about the blacklist and, Baseball could not have sort of treated the contracts with the same impunity as they were before. Although, again, the contract issue was not an antitrust issue. That was just sort of a violation of contract issue. But you, you would have clearly seen a different response. So, yes, I, I think that, and I think, you know, I think Landis, despite all his, you know, what we know about him now, his arrogance and his sort of quirky personality, I think he was a very smart guy. And I think he recognized that, that this was a very likely outcome of his just sitting on this thing, that it would lead to some sort of a settlement. So, so what happened then? What, what was this quote unquote settlement? And again, I, you know, in other genres and other sports and other times and, uh, uh, that we've, uh, explored on this, this, uh, this podcast, the, 
it almost feels like a merger of sorts, right? Because you look at sort of all the elements, but I guess it maybe wasn't officially or even remotely considered that in the, against the the grains of time. But um, maybe you can give a sense of sort of what what sort of happened then uh, between these two entities that uh, that kind of settled things. Yeah, I think merger is is too strong a word. I mean, I think clearly that the 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 federally got more than they probably. I mean, I think they did a nice job negotiating it. So essentially. Uh, Charles Wiegman had the right to buy the Cubs, and Phil Ball of St. Louis had the right to buy the Browns. Uh, the baseball was going to pay Robert Ward's estate, uh, and the current owners, George Ward, who was his brother and a minority owner, they were going to get, in Brooklyn, they were going to get $400,000 over 10 years. So they were, um, they, they were going to get, over, excuse me, over 20 years. So they were going to get $20,000 a year for 20 years, uh, the the uh, Pittsburgh team got fifty thousand was paid off at fifty thousand dollars. And again, I mean, the Pittsburgh owners probably lost. You know, these teams are losing at least eighty to one hundred thousand dollars a year, so it didn't really um, uh, match up. Uh, the team, the league, contributed fifty thousand dollars towards Wiegman's purchase uh, of the Cubs, and. So you had two owners. The funny thing about the two owners that were allowed to buy into major leagues is that they were allowed to. And, and the other thing is, is that the federal league was forced to, to honor their players' contracts. Well, I mean, they had to honor them anyway, but they own them. So to the degree you had good players, you could sell those players' contracts to the major league teams. And guys like Lee McGee and some other players, you know, were sold to the to the majors uh, to the teams. On the other hand, if you couldn't sell him, you were forced to, if you had signed a guy to a three-year guaranteed contract, you were forced to pay him um, for another year. So there was both some positives and, and negatives to that. Um, but the interesting thing, so since the, since the Federal League teams owned the, 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 essentially their player contracts, the 1916 Cubs and the 1916 Browns were were basically amalgamations of two squads. So you could... You you pick the best of those players. I mean, it was kind of a nice deal for uh, you know those so those teams were got a got a nice little bump in playing ability. You were essentially putting two major league teams together and picking the best of them. And Sinclair got a nice little payday for his uh, his one year uh, uh, experiment with the Newark Peppers, huh? Yeah, he got uh, two hundred thousand dollars. I think ten thousand dollars a year for twenty years. I, I think it was probably less than he lost, but he also. Um, he took over the player contracts for all the teams that had sort of gone out of business. So Kansas City and Buffalo uh, had had really, you know, forfeited their franchises to the league. They hadn't been able to pay their bills for the end of the year, and the league was just sort of subsidizing them. So he owned. So he took over a whole lot of those player contracts and was, had the ability to sell those players to the major leagues to the degree he could get anything for it. Do we want to talk about the asterisk that was Rupert Mills and the New York? <laughs> sure. So um, Rupert Mills had been signed by Newark uh, uh, before the 1915 season. He was uh, they signed him from Notre Dame, and he, they signed him to a two-year contract. And essentially, they I think it was a three thousand dollars a year. And Newark wanted to buy him out after the season. They tried to buy these players' contracts out, and Mills said, "I don't want to be bought out." So Mills would show up. So this was 1916. There was no no league. He would show up at the park at 8:30. Um, sit around there for a bunch of hours till lunchtime, go have lunch, come back, sit around till six and go home. And he would, 
he would collect. And eventually, by about July, both he and the <coughs> Newark folks had uh, sort of drawn tired of the charade, and they agreed to some settlement. But uh, yeah, he would he would show up every day for about uh, four months, uh, so that he because he didn't want to take a buyout, and he wanted to get what he had been promised. Yeah, so that's a funny story. I yeah, agree. So, yeah, so technically, you had a, a player in a league that didn't even exist anymore. Um, but you, I mean, you're right. It does seem like it's uh, I, it's it's curious to me that you've got the American and National League owners um, essentially buying out quite a bit of uh, uh, not for a whole lot of money, but but essentially buying out a lot, and then a couple of the owners actually getting, uh, well, in the case of Sinclair, a fairly nice payday given the player contracts and all, but also two of the owners getting effectively. Uh, two of the weaker uh, uh, organized baseball franchises and and injecting new life into them. So it, it again, it, I say the word merger, and and again, many historians have not used that word. I'm I'm and I'm an amateur historian at that, right? But uh, it does seem like that for uh, a league that only existed for two on-field seasons, really, uh, it was a fairly decent uh, result for those who uh, kind of knew what they were sort of up against and. Uh, and and had some some resonance, right? I mean, including some legacies, right? Including you know, like the the uh, anybody who goes into the uh, into Wrigley Field now, right, owes a debt of gratitude to Charles Wiegum and and that park because the without that park, the Chicago Whales and and his then ownership of the Cubs the, from that, uh, you would not have the friendly confines today. <laughs> You're right. Now, I mean, I, I think you know, I mean, letting the two owners buy in, I, I mean. Baseball, organized baseball, wanted to get a new ownership for the Cubs. I mean, they they thought they had gotten rid of Charles Murphy when Charles Taft bought him out uh, in twenty four in, in, in nineteen fourteen, and you know then it turned out Murphy still owns some. So I mean, they they wanted a new ownership in Chicago, so that actually worked out for them. You, you know, uh, they had wanted the Browns, Hedges had wanted to get out of ownership for a while and was happy to take his money and go home. So I don't think. I mean, clearly, you know, baseball was, I mean, the Federal League owners got something that they wanted. They, they wanted Major League ownership, and they got it. That said, you know, organized baseball wasn't too unhappy to give up those two franchises to new folks. And then you had, you know, the money that was paid out, you know, again, so you had the 400000 over 20 years to, to the wards and, 200000 over 20 years to Sinclair. I mean, it's real money, but, you know, once you start looking at it over 20 years, all of a sudden, you know, on a present value basis, it's not quite as significant. But, yeah, I mean, when, the player, when you tack in the players who were sold, there was, there was probably a total of, you know, seven, seven, eight hundred thousand dollars that was uh, paid out to the Federals. All right. Well, I guess let's let's round home, no, no pun, perhaps pun, with this, <laughs> with the, on this story with... Um, with uh, the years that followed, because the, we we mentioned it before a couple of times, but the uh, the Baltimore Terrapins, uh, to your point earlier, didn't uh, the ownership uh, did not kind of want to go quietly, and and really that there there were sort of the uh, uh, I guess the 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 lasting sort of remnant of this league that uh, continued to push this uh, case all the way up to the Supreme Court, and I think it's an important legacy. Um, if you want to kind of just gently walk us through sort of uh, what this federal baseball club versus the National League uh, case was about and, and sort of what uh, what transpired 
Uh, I guess it was in 1922, finally, the Supreme Court finally got to this case. Right. So the other teams, Kansas City and Buffalo, that that were sort of uh, owned municipally or community community ownership, they they had they had run out of money. But Baltimore hadn't. And Baltimore, when the when the two sides reached the settlement, Baltimore said, "No, that that's not the deal. I mean, we want to be a major league team. You can't just sort of collapse this league on us like this." And so they basically sued everybody, including the other federal league owners, saying. You know, it was unfair the way you collapsed this league, and Major League Baseball shouldn't have been able to do all this stuff to us through the antitrust laws. And so they actually, so they sued uh, under the antitrust laws and said, you know, we, this isn't right. Um, you, you can't do this. We, 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 baseball is a violation of the antitrust, baseball violated antitrust. And so it went to, they actually won at the, uh, at the first level. At, 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 at the low, at, at the first level of the court. Um, that said, it, when they won, the judge essentially instructed the jury that baseball was, in fact, interstate commerce. And this, without getting too legally technical here, for Congress to be able to uh, have jurisdiction over over something, over an industry, it has to be interstate commerce. Otherwise, it's within the state, and it's just governed by state laws. Today, essentially, uh, the way the courts interpret things pretty much anything is interstate commerce but at the time it was it was a much narrower definition of what was interstate and what was commerce and the judge in that first case said it's interstate commerce so the judge so the jury naturally ruled for baltimore and um, they ruled they gave him eighty thousand dollars which under the statutes was tr- tripled to 240 and then they were awarded legal fees. So essentially Baltimore got $264,000, which was a lot of money at the time uh, for, uh, from baseball. Baseball appealed, and it actually looked for a time like there might be some sort of settlement because baseball didn't, they could always lose. They didn't want to keep going and be, be possibly subject to antitrust laws. And Baltimore, you know, they clearly weren't going to get a major, be given a major league franchise uh, and so, you know, if they could come out with something close to that 264, that might look good. But they couldn't settle. They kept going. And eventually it went it, on appeal. The courts ruled that not only so the, the courts actually ruled it two ways in favor of organized baseball. They ruled that baseball was not commerce, that playing baseball was not commerce. It was uh, entertainment and that it was not interstate either that taking players across the line players going across state lines for the sake of this of this entertainment was not so it wasn't interstate and it wasn't commerce and it was appealed to this court baltimore then appealed that to the supreme court and the supreme court ruled nine zero actually in favor of organized baseball that baseball was neither commerce nor was it interstate and so it was it was essentially given this de facto um this de facto antitrust exemption, which, as people have challenged it going forward, because clearly we define interstate commerce differently now than we did in 1922, the courts do anyway, that the courts have said when it's come back up, sort of stare decisis, right, that we're, we're not going to overturn this previous case, even if it doesn't really make sense in today's ruling, it's up to Congress to finally uh, overturn this, this not up to us in the courts. And I would say that that's um, that that antitrust exemption has allowed baseball to remain free from any competitor on the field over all these years versus what we've seen with the ABA or the 
AFL. All right, our thanks to Dan and uh, our enlightenment about the Federal League. And, um, you know, it uh, it was obviously many, many years ago, uh, more than 100 years ago now. Uh, But, you know, look, if you're a fan of the Chicago Cubs and you go to Wrigley Field and enjoy the friendly confines, well, you know what? You should understand that history because without the Federal League and the uh, chai-fed whales, or I guess the Chicago whales, I guess, at the end of time, uh, and um, that the brand new stadium in 1915 that uh, Charles uh, Wiegum uh, 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 enabled uh, uh, for his uh, fledgling team. That's the source. That's the uh, that's the origination of of that uh, of that uh, stadium, and it exists today. Uh, it stands out as a crown jewel of Major League Baseball. And uh, I, you know, uh, without understanding history, you sort of can't appreciate. I think. Uh, some of the cool things that you experience today, uh, including, you know, the world championship of the Chicago Cubs a couple of years back, right? So uh, every time you step into the friendly confines of Wrigley Field, remember, remember where it all started. That was the Federal League, uh, as well as a whole bunch of other uh, stories and dynamics. Again, as we've said, uh, some of which still exist today when it comes to player relations and franchise and ex- expansion and uh, ownership versus uh, labor and all that kind of stuff. But those are things that uh, are timeless, uh, for good and for, for worse. Uh, and uh, uh, that's the prism by which uh, uh, we love to explore some of these conversations and journeys. So our thanks to Dan. Again, the name of the book is called The Outlaw League and the Battle that Forged Modern Baseball. You can find that wherever good books are found. Of course, you can also find a link to uh, the book uh, to uh, purchase said uh, tome uh, on our website, of course, at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up the episode. Uh, with uh, with Dan Levitt and uh, you can find a link and you'll see some nice images and stuff as well as of course all the uh, the dozens and dozens of other episodes we've done thus far and obviously for those yet to come uh, it is there of course you can also find the various places that we distribute this show just about wherever you find good podcasts uh, on our on the site there you also find our uh, various social media handles as well and uh, we'll just give you those as a little shortcut right now that's at Good Seats Still on Twitter. Uh, you'll find us on uh, Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. You will find us on Facebook, of course, a little page devoted to us at Good Seats Still Available around uh, that. I, the, uh, I think that's the definition or the uh, the label of, uh, of the page there. Uh, you will also uh, be able to email us. Just go to our website for that. Uh, what else? Uh, you know, all kinds of good stuff. Just go to the website. You can't remember any of it. You'll find everything all there and uh, by all means. So you also get our newsletter. We have a new newsletter sort of going up and, and running as well. Uh, if you want to sort of get a, a head start on what those uh, episodes are going to be for this week, uh, you can sign up for that there as well. Uh, last but not least, our friend uh, Jerry Payne. We thank you uh, again, as always, for your editing and uh, production help. Uh, he, of course, being part of uh, the uh, wonderful team at Podfly Productions. And you can learn more about them and their podcast capabilities should you be interested in learning more about how to do so yourself. And uh, they, of course, can be found at podfly.com. All right, that's it for this week. I appreciate, as always, your listenership, uh, your interactions with us via email and uh, and uh, social media. And uh, we can't thank you enough for giving us a listen. And uh, we hope you have a, a, a safe return journey to our future and, and past episodes. Let us know what you think. We always love to hear from you. Take care. And until next week, ta-ta. Ta-ta.